kind of move on to the more important things or, or, or more accurately go back to talking about the cross because that's where everything happens at the cross. And indeed, the cross is important, but the resurrection um, is something that I feel is a truth about Jesus that most Christians, because they don't get the resurrection, their idea of heaven, their idea of what's to come is actually quite boring. It's unbiblical and it's boring and it lacks um, grandeur. And so my hope this morning, as we look at Jesus's bodily resurrection, it will give us a glimpse of our future resurrection and how Jesus is going to redeem all of creation. Because reality is, if you ask the average person on the street or even the Christian about what is the resurrection like for people, they're going to give you wildly um, uh, crazy answers all over the board. And they can't all be right. And in my history, I've been a Christian for 19 years in like two weeks is my 19th year of birthday. Over the years at churches, I found that most people have a very confusing picture of what the afterlife is. They don't know what exactly it's going to be like. And so this morning, as we key in on the bodily resurrection of Jesus, it's going to give us a good idea about what is to come. Wouldn't you want to know what heaven's like? Would you like to know a little bit more about what is to come for us who are trusting in Jesus? And it is far more wonderful than you can ever imagine, and simultaneously ordinary, okay? So what's to come is far more incredible than you could ever imagine, and yet very much ordinary, and we'll get that into that in a minute. But before we do, let me set a foundation by going back to the beginning of what, why we even have a need for a resurrection. How did everything go to the bad word, you know, whatever, fill in. Like, why is the world the way it is? You know, this last week I had the privilege of connecting with this stranger, and uh, I was able to share the gospel with him at times, and there was one point where he just erupted. He said, why is the world, if God is real, why is he letting all this stuff happen? Why is Putin doing what he's doing in Ukraine? Why is this happening? Why about, you know, people dying? He just went on, and I just saw this angst in his heart. So the question is, why do we have all that in this world? Why in this world right now, in this room right now, are the product of broken families, divorces, neglect, abuse? Many of us have bodies that are literally like falling apart right now and decaying. Like, why is this world the way it is? And so let me remind you why everything is the way it is. Because in the beginning, it was not like this. When God created the world, he actually called it, what's the word? good. He called it good. The uncreated one created this world. He fashioned it out of nothing, and he designed it to be good. He created all that we have on this earth, and it was good. It was his idea. I want to make sure that point is clear. Creation, bodies, food, stuff, earth, ground, tangible, solid stuff, that's God's idea, and it was a good thing. And yet in Genesis chapter 3, a really bad thing happens. We call that the fall. Man believed, our parents, Adam and Eve, believed that God was stingy, that he wasn't generous, that he didn't know what was best for them. That man, we, we started to believe this lie that we know what's best for us. We know what would make us happy. We know what would make us fulfilled. And so man rejected God's loving and wise rule in order to take the reins himself. And the result of that rejection of God's loving and wise rule was the beginning of all that went bad in this world. 
a spiral downward, increasingly getting darker and darker. As man rejected God's rule, they lost God's presence. Heaven and earth were now separated. The spiritual and the physical, which was used to be one in harmony, now is separated. And now we have this distance from God. We cannot see him anymore with our eyes his presence is no longer tangibly in front of us. We can't no, no longer walk up to God and just walk with him and see his face. So that's the greatest consequence of the fall. We don't have that untethered, unfettered access to God in his presence. But the other results of that lack of presence is, is that death and decay fall into the world. So all of our bodies don't work right as they ought to. Like anybody here, anybody here, your body doesn't work right right now? You feel it right now, right? People are high-fiving each other. Yeah, me too. Back hurts, right? right? We can have solidarity in our brokenness, right? But not just our physical bodies. Our emotions don't always feel right, do they? Right? Sometimes we're under the cloud of despair, and we're dark, depression, and we're sad, and we don't even know why, right? We don't feel right. We try to pray, and we can't focus. We're sleepy. We're falling asleep as we try to connect with God. I mean, everything about our bodies and our emotions are off. Our sexual desires are tainted and twisted. Every single person on this earth is fighting these twisted desires that were once good and now twisted. Even our relationships are soured, right? We are, like I said, product of divorces in this room, product of neglect, abuse, brokenness. Some of you got in fights with your loved ones in the car as you drove this morning. Some of you will fight on the way home. Some of you are giving each other stink eyes right now, right? Like the, the fallenness is pervasive and everywhere. And yet, remember, God created it initially and it was supposed to be good. Physical, supposed to be good, all is good. Man was actually supposed to partner with God to cultivate this world, to expand God's creation, to delight in it, and to guard it. So hopefully that clear is clear. So everything is bad because of man, but God initially created it for good. Let me, let me clarify a couple of key points, and then we're going to get into our text. Hopefully this foundation is worthwhile. Number one, God created bodies and creation. It was good. It's good stuff. Yet, number two, man messed it up by rejecting God's loving and wise reign. Number three, which resulted in all the good creation being twisted and fallen and man having separation from God. Every aspect down to what we create, like music, to food, to relationships, every little thing was now tainted. Number four, man has not been able to redeem creation nor create peace with God. Number five, praise be to God that through Christ Jesus, he's made a way for us to have relationship with God, peace with God. And yet, there's a problem that still remains. Creation is still not redeemed. Some of you will die in the next few years. That's a reality. I may die tomorrow. And yet, though we have reconciliation with God through Jesus, we still have a problem with our bodies. We still have a problem with this decaying world. We have issues with the climate. We have issues with natural disasters. I can't get my grass to be green right now. Even though we installed sod last year, it's ridiculously frustrating, right? There's toil because of the curse. Work is cursed. Work was initially good, and now it's cursed, and so we toil when we work. It's hard with bosses. It's hard with clients. It's hard. It's hard to wake up early. It's hard to do all. Everything is hard. And so the question that still remains that even though Christ has come, why is creation still unredeemed and broken? 
so that we're going to get into that this morning. We're going to see the first fruits of the redemption of all creation. We're going to get a little glimpse of what the new creation is going to look like through Jesus, his body. So, to set up the context of what's going on, the disciples, some of them have had encounters with the risen Jesus, like Peter. Most of them haven't. They've just heard about Jesus being risen from the, get, from the dead. Some of them have heard from angels, but most of them are confused and bewildered, wondering about Jesus. And you remember, they, they weren't expecting Jesus to rise from the dead. And at this point, their hearts are still filled with fear. They're, they're afraid the Jews are going to come after them. So according to the Gospel of John, they're actually in a locked room together, talking, wondering. So that brings us to Luke chapter 24, verse 36. That was a long intro, hopefully worth it. We'll see, only time will tell. Verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. In the midst of this secret meeting, Jesus just appears among them. And so somehow, this, the bodily resurrected Jesus has this ability to just show up where he needs to be. And yet he's neither a ghost or a spirit, as we will see. Jesus has a body, but he's more than a body. And Jesus starts off with a very common Jewish greeting, shalom alchem, shalom to you all. Very common, but yet very extraordinary that he starts off with those words. Why, why is that extraordinary that it's going to start off by saying shalom, peace? Shalom, remember, isn't just the word peace. It means wellness in all things, creation, everything. I want all to be well with you. Not just like, you know, but it, it's a pervasive, robust peace in every aspect, relationally with God, with people, with body, with creation. Shalom. Let's put ourselves in the disciples' shoes. These guys are scared. They are confused. They're disoriented. It's been a wild few days. Many of them have rejected the Lord in the darkest moment. Some of them abandoned him. Some of them even betrayed him. One of them denied him. Now think about Jesus's, where he's coming from. Put, it, put yourself in Jesus's shoes to hear the disciples They're not full of peace. They're full of disunity, confusion, shame, guilt, probably. Now think about Jesus, his best friends whom he walked with for three years, that he was always faithful, always did good to them. And yet all of them abandoned him. All fled. One betrayed him. One denied him and made eye contact with him right after he did it in the rooster crowed. What would you say to a bunch of your friends? Have you ever been hurt by somebody and you start having invisible, imaginary conversations with them in your head. Oh, when I see them, I'm going to say this and that. And oh, man, they're going to they're get it, right? Imagine, what, what would Jesus say to these disciples after all of them cowardly fled? What would he say? What would come out of his mouth the first time he sees them? Rebuke? A lecture on how they need to be courageous and have faith? Condemnation? Anger? Or maybe something like he would say like this. Hey, I don't remember any of you guys at the cross except John. Where were you guys? Where were you guys at the Sanhedrin when they were lying about me, condemning me, beating me, spitting at me, blindfolding me, putting a crown of thorns? Where were you guys there in that moment of darkness? Would you blame him if he said anything like that? 
It'd be very understandable to be upset at your best friends abandoning you at your darkest hour. And yet, what does Jesus do? The first words out of his mouth when he sees his unfaithful friends who are cowards in a locked room, what does he say to them? Peace to you. He extends peace to these cowards, his friends who betrayed him. He extends peace to those who are not faithful to him, even though he's only been faithful to them. And yet, this is no cheap peace. How can he extend peace to sinners and cowards like them? Well, because he already just died for their punishment. See, cowardice, unfaithfulness, faithlessness is a sin. And yet Jesus died for sinners like them and like us. So Jesus is able to, out of his mouth, love his enemies and bless his enemies who are his best friends and grant to them peace, the first thing he says when he sees them. Do you just marvel at that? I I think if you grew up in church, you're like, oh yeah, of course Jesus does that. He's Jesus. But have you stopped lately and just marveled at the fact that Jesus loves enemies? Jesus loves people who treat him like dirt? That's amazing. What a Savior. What a Savior that he would bless them and extend peace instead of lecture them, or rip them up. Likewise, Jesus died for all of us here who are trusting in him, and he can extend peace to you even this morning if you betrayed him this week, even if you were a coward this week, even if you were unfaithful, he's saying peace to you. So you can come to him this morning. Now let's look at verse 37. How do the disciples respond in light of this? But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Why would they be startled and think they see a spirit? Well, if you were in a locked room and all of a sudden someone popped up and was like, hey, peace to you, you'd be like, whoa, right? Especially if you thought the guy was dead, right? That would freak out anybody, right? And I think sometimes we have this idea that, oh, those, those prehistoric ancient disciples, they were so uncultured and so easily fooled. No, they were normal people like us. They're, they didn't have a concept of people coming back from the dead. They'd be like, that's weird. I, I don't believe it. And in fact, you'll see in this text that they don't believe that he could be alive. They, they think that he's some sort of spirit, right? The apostles in that day had a concept of ghosts and spirits, kind of like many in our culture have that mindset too. Like Casper, the friendly ghost, you remember that as a kid? Any of you guys remember that? Um, so you guys, kid, I was 50 when that came out, Sam. Sorry, I forget. I'm young, right? Casper or uh, Jacob Marley in the Christmas Carol. It's like this spirit that's kind of like the former self, but not exactly floaty, you know, ethereal and, and tormented, right? And so back then, they had that mindset of a ghost back then. And so obviously, you see someone who you thought was dead appear out of nowhere in a locker room. You're going to think, are you a ghost? What am I seeing right here? So they're freaked out. Verse 38. And Jesus said to them, why are you troubled? And why, do you doubt, why does doubt arise in your hearts? And disciples are like, are you serious? You just popped out of nowhere, and you were dead. Well, Jesus knows that he thinks... There, he's a ghost, and so verse 37, he even he knows that, so that's what it says in verse 37. But Jesus, like he does, patiently, lovingly, kindly meets them in their skepticism, in their confusion, in their doubts. And I just want to say it again. 
if you have doubts or confusions or skepticisms about Jesus, he is patient. He's got big boy pants. He can handle your doubts. He can handle your struggles. Come to him with your doubts, and he will walk you through it, and we're happy to walk with you through those doubts. So what does he do? Jesus gives them two proofs of his bodily resurrection, okay? Two proofs. Verse 39, Jesus says, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. In the Gospel of John, it'll be on the screen too, verse 20, 2020, when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then disciples were glad they saw the Lord. See, Jesus knows that seeing, you could see something and that could be a vision, right? But you can't touch a vision. You can't touch a spirit or a ghost. So Jesus welcomes them. Hey, look, look at my side where they pierce me, where the blood and the water flowed. Look at my hands where they nailed me and my feet. He, he is giving them tangible physical evidence that he's actually a body. His body has been resurrected, not just his spirit. And in verse 36, he says, the text says, Jesus himself. And now in our text right here in verse 39 and 40, if you can go back, Jesus says, it is I myself. Jesus is making abundantly clear, guys, it's me. Hey, hey woo, you remember me? Look, it's me. Touch me, see me. It is me. See, there, there are some sects of Christianity or so-called Christians who have this belief that Jesus did indeed rise from the dead, but it was a spiritual rising. In our hearts, he's real. He's not really physically risen. He didn't come back with a body. Actually, if you look up uh, the JWs or Jehovah's Witness, they believe Jesus was not physically raised from the dead. It was just a spiritual raising. And yet Jesus is trying to make this abundantly clear in this moment. No, it's, it's me. Look, physical. And it's interesting that Jesus shows them the side in his hands. Why would he show, him, show them the sides in his hands? Because that's where he was murdered. Those are the marks of his suffering for us. And what that suggests to us is that Jesus forever will have scars on his body as an everlasting memorial to you and me about what he did for us, how much he loves us, and that our sins are truly forgiven. Jesus has a body even right now. Is that weird to you? That even at the right hand of the Father, Jesus has a body. He's forever the God-man. He's forever incarnated. And now he has more than a body, but not less than a body. Jesus can relate with us in so many ways, and this is another great reminder now, I need to keep going. Let's look at the second proof of Jesus eating. Verse 41, Luke 24, 41. And while they still disbelieve for joy, real quick, disbelieve for joy, what does that mean? It, it means kind of like, I can't believe it, right? Imagine the greatest news you can ever have. And, and one of the common phrases that come out of our mouth is, I can't believe it. It's not that you don't believe it, it's you do believe, but you're struggling to believe because it's so good, it's so extraordinary, so out of this world and phenomenal that it's hard to believe. I can't believe it. And they were marveling, and Jesus said to them, have you have anything to eat? <laughs> this is amazing here. 
the disciples are absolutely still befuddled, even though they can see his physical body and maybe they even touched him. I know we, at this point, Thomas, if you go to John's account, Thomas has dropped on his knees declaring, my God and my Lord, my Lord and my God. And yet in this bewildered state, Jesus asked for something so ordinary. You got some food? I haven't eaten in a minute. I'm dead. <laughs> I'm hungry. It's been days. What, Jesus, you want food? But you're Jesus. Why would you need food? Isn't food a sign of weakness? That you're needy, that you're a creature, that you have needs, that you want something, and yet apparently Jesus wants to eat food here, because he does. And he does later on, even at the, at, at the sea. He's eating fish. He likes fish. So take that, vegans. Sorry. Jesus likes fish. Sorry. Bless you if you like that stuff. Um, Gosh, I shouldn't have said that. All right, if you're offended by that anyway, I do respect your choices. You're probably healthier than me. But Jesus does eat food. He eats meat. And, and we don't know by this text if he needs the food, but he is eating the food. And I remember when I was in high school, I, I, bought, I, I saved up money to buy an audio Bible. It was a dramatized audio Bible. And this one, Jesus was like, mm, mm. you could even hear him like chowing down on this fish. And I never, never could forget the sounds of someone eating in the microphone. Um, but this is amazing. Jesus is eating food. Not Jesus, the incarnated one before the resurrection. Jesus, even after resurrection, is eating food. And we're going to get to that even more. Verse 42 and 43, and they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, no sushi, I guess, and he took it and ate before them. I, can you just imagine that picture of Jesus eating fish and you're just, the disciples are like, just, just, what? You know, some of you guys like watching people eat, you know, those people who just like watch. I would want to see Jesus eat in that moment. That's insane. Notice that the disciples don't correct Jesus here. Jesus, what are you doing? You don't need food. You're the risen Lord. You're God. Food is weakness. Food is bad. Physical is bad. Matter is bad. Spirit is good. Prayer is good. Bible's good. But eating, that's not spiritual, Jesus. I think C.S. Lewis famously said, don't be more spiritual than Jesus. And I kind of grew up in a Christian tradition that, that saw all physical things as kind of just like a necessary reality. You know, physical thing is kind of like a... Um, you know, you just have to deal with it. But really, what is good and God loves is prayer and worship and communion. And yet, what we see in this text and what you see in many texts in the Bible is that the spiritual and physical have, were not meant to be divided. They were meant to become one. And this is the beginning of them becoming one, where God is redeeming the physical, where eating is actually a God-glorifying thing. It's a good thing, and Jesus is eating this fish to the glory of God. And this is another sign that he's no ghost. Ghosts don't eat food, right? If you watch the cartoons, like it kind of goes down. It just kind of goes through their body, right? That's not how it works, really, but, right? but you get what I'm saying. Jesus is showing, look, listen, I'm a body, and I eat things. Now, that's the end of our passage this morning. We, we broke up our passage to be shorter so that now I can have the privilege of kind of breaking uh, down and kind of exploring the, the glorious implications of Jesus' bodily resurrection, okay? Now, before I do that, I need to clarify a common misconception. When we talk about the afterlife, people often say, 
Will, when you die, will you go to where? Heaven. And yet, the biblical authors don't use that word as much as us do in the States, in the West. See, their idea, the thing about heaven is heaven right now is a temporary reality. I know that sounds crazy to you, right? I'm not denying the eternality of God's dwelling place. What I'm saying is that heaven is a temporary reality because of the fall and that when Jesus comes back and redeems all things, heaven's going to come onto this earth. So where will heaven be one day? Here. Heaven will come and invade earth and physical and spiritual will become one and God will reign on this earth, on this good, created, redeemed world. But when we usually talk about death and life, we usually say, oh, heaven. And so we think of sky because heaven is actually the word for sky in the original languages. And so we have this idea that like, we're just going to be forever just kind of doing this, you know, and just singing forever, right? When we've been there 10,000 years, right? We're like, all right, sing it again for the 50th time, do it again, right? And it's just like this never-ending church service that just is like, oh, God, really? Is that going to be that good, right? And yet, it will be that good because we get to see Jesus' face, right? And like the, like the seraphim and, and cherubim, they're going to see another facet of God, and we're going to say, holy, holy, no way, I never saw that side of you for eternity. We're going to be amazed at him. But we're not going to just sing forever. Our worship won't be a merely singing, but it will be eating, and it will be doing a lot of things because God will redeem this earth. So, so when you think of heaven, and, and parents, when you talk about heaven with your kids, make sure they know heaven will be here. Make sure that they're longing inside of them for art and creation and music and food. Those are God-given things. Those aren't inherently evil. But they've been twisted by the world, twisted by the fall, twisted by our flesh. And Jesus is going to redeem that, and heaven will be here. We'll create. We'll rule, according to certain passages. We're going to actually have work, good work. All right, let me, let me like, get into that. Creation redeemed. Let, let's look at a text that kind of t- touches on some of these concepts. Romans 8, 19 through 21. Would you read this out loud with me? For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's in glorious freedom from death and decay. Right now, creation, like I said, we have reconciliation with God, we have peace with God, and yet we don't have peace on this earth. There's physical brokenness, there's death and decay. And so God's good creation is under this curse, and until Jesus comes back and redeems the world, it will still be under the curse. No matter how many different initiatives we do, though laudable and valuable, they will not be sufficient to redeem this world. It will be not, it won't be enough to bring utopia here. Do you see, there's some people talk about different ways to bring restoration, and we have two main thoughts. Okay, I'm doing this off the cuff, so bear with me, all right? There's two major thoughts of the way people relate with um, how to redeem this world. You got souls in transit. So we're all souls just in transit, and we're just waiting for this whole world to explode, and then God will whisk us up, and one day we'll be fine. So right now, drive diesel trucks, and it doesn't matter, doesn't matter how you live, all right? So you got that one side of thinking. The other side is progressive utopia, 
We're going to make this world as much of heaven as possible. We're going to do everything we can through policy, through different ways to make sure we're going to bring heaven on earth. And both are partially true and both are partially wrong. And so what Jesus is going to do is when he comes back, he is going to redeem everything physical that's wrong. The fact that we have natural disasters, those will end. And Jesus' body being resurrected is the first fruits. It's the teaser. It's the trailer. It's the billboard of what is to come. So as you look at Jesus' resurrected, renewed body that is no longer bleeding, that is no longer suffering, that is whole and healthy and won't decay, won't die, that is a little foretaste of the future resurrection of all of creation, everything. So because Jesus' body rose, all of creation will one day be redeemed. No more climate change or disease, no more natural disasters, no more physical brokenness. But then that leads to something more personal. This redemption of Jesus' body gives us a foretaste of our redemption. Look at 1 John 3, 2. This is for humanity now, for those who are trusting in Jesus. Verse 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, Jesus, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. You're going to be like the resurrected Jesus. Philippians 3.20, if you don't believe me, here's another text. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. Jesus is in heaven right now, and heaven has not come yet back onto the earth. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious, what's that word? Body. He has a body. It's a glorious body. It's a glorified body, but it's a body. He, Jesus has a body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then one more final passage. And would you read this out loud with me and just declare it because it's so beautiful. Verse, verse 52, 1 Corinthians 15. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye. Hallelujah. Amen. We're going to have immortal bodies. We still have bodies, but they're more than the bodies that we have here. Imagine a body that is like the resurrected body of Jesus. So, again, anyone here not feeling well physically? We have masks in this room, which is a reminder that the world is not as it ought to be. There are viruses that are so small that you can't see that could actually kill you. That's insane. That's horrifying. And yet one day there will be no COVID, no Ebola, no cancer, no hydrocephalus in a little baby's head. The Gruber's child wouldn't have hydrocephalus in the new heavens and new earth. That won't exist. No gaining weight. Hallelujah. No insomnia. No disease. No memory loss. Our bodies will fully function as they were originally designed and even greater. Amen? but also our emotions. Our desires will fully 
function properly. We'll feel the right way always. We'll always feel the right way. We'll always desire the right things. No more depression. No more wild mood swings. No more time of the month, if anyone knows what I'm saying. No anxiety. No lustful, twisted desires. We will always feel rightly. Anyone anxious this last week? Anyone feel anxious? My hand's up. Wow, you guys are not anxious people. I was anxious last week, all right? You won't be anxious anymore on that day. Amen? Anyone fighting with twisted sexual desires? Not on that day. Anybody under a clouded depression that you just can't get out? Not on that day. And even more, even more, because all of creation will be redeemed and all God's people redeemed, no more broken flesh will be glorified, we'll never again have sinful conflict with another person. There are a lot of things in this world that make me sad, but the thing that brings me the most sadness is relational disunity and brokenness. There are people in my life who are no longer in my life that still just keep me up at night. Joanna catches me. We're hanging out on Sabbath day, on hanging out on Saturday, I'm just staring off, and she knows I'm in another world just reliving the sadness and the brokenness and the trauma. And I'm praying, Lord, how long, O Lord, till I have reconciliation with those people? How long, O Lord? Don't we all hate the pain of not being being misunderstood? Don't we all hate the pain of being hurt by those we love or hurting the people we love? That will never happen again. Because all is redeemed, you will never sin against another person and no one will ever sin against you. Isn't that good news? That day will come. That day will come where you'll never have another fight with your spouse. You'll never have another strained relationship with one of your children. Nothing like that will ever happen again on that day because all will be redeemed under Jesus. And because Jesus, because our creation will be redeemed and our bodies were redeemed, we'll be able to enjoy creation rightly and appropriately. Right now, because creation and our bodies are still under the fall, we often idolize and abuse creation. We take created things and make them more important than the creator. We make good things ultimate things. All of us do it, right? Many of us here struggle with the sin of gluttony. It's, it's, the, it's the unsaid sin of Americans, where we find solace in food. We idolize food. We are... We are led and controlled by our bellies and our appetites. We eat without control. But on that day, we will all have perfect relationships with food. And it'll be good. Can you imagine? And many of us here struggle with idolizing relationships. We are shackled by the thoughts of man. We're shackled by the fear of man and what people think of us, their opinions of us. Our identity is placed in relationships. And that day, you will have perfect appropriate weighing and relating with other people. Amen? There's hobbies too, right? As many of you guys know, I love golf. I love playing golf. And right now, because I'm a, I have an obsessive tendency, I have to weekly repent or pray or confess or work through how to make sure I take a good gift like golf, the best game God ever created, right? <laughs> take this good gift and make sure it's in the proper place and that Jesus is still on his throne. And I'm using golf as a way to worship God, a way to be an outreach, like I was able to share the gospel two days ago, and today I'll be able to share a little bit more this afternoon at 150. 
with this guy that I've been building a relationship with who doesn't know Jesus, right? Use it for the kingdom instead of use it for my flesh. But on that day, none of us will idolize hobbies. Men, many of us idolize sports. We retreat into sports. We find our identity in sports. We find our joys in sports. That day, you will be able to enjoy hobbies without idolizing it. And women, wives, you will no longer suffer under your husband's obsession over these things, like putting a ball in a hoop. Read with me this, and imagine this beautiful scene that will happen when Jesus makes all things right. Isaiah 25, 6-7. It's just a, a picture of the end days. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. Whoa! Alcohol? Yeah. Verse 7. There he will remove the cloud of gloom, the shadow of death that hangs over the earth. Amen? Food and wine redeemed. A banquet. Can you imagine that kind of meat? Oh, man. One final implication, death destroyed. In Isaiah 25, if we keep reading verse 8, he will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people will be taken away from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is Yahweh. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. See, the beauty of the bodily resurrection is that if Jesus did not raise physically, then we don't raise physically. Jesus' raising physically is the first fruit of our eventual resurrection of those of us who are trusting in Jesus. If Jesus did not raise physically, then death is still alive and well and not defeated. But the reality is death is still alive and well. Many of us die, and many of us have had loved ones who died recently. And yet the promise is on the cross and Jesus' resurrection is the decisive victory over death, and then when Jesus comes back will be the death of death, okay? So death has already got its time stamp of death. It's already been given its bill of health. It is going to die after a certain amount of time when God appoints, and then when Jesus returns, death will die, and no one will ever die again. But here is the issue that we kind of bring full circle Though all these promises come true one day, we are still eagerly waiting for that day. We are under the curse. We here have twisted desires. We have twisted bodies. We have broken bodies. We all groan. We struggle with difficult relationships. We fight with each other. We witness atrocities in the world on a daily. We still feel the pain of betrayals and wrongs. And church, here's the good news. If you are trusting in Jesus, we are one day closer to that day. We're one week closer than we were last week of seeing his face and making all things right. When we will never suffer pain again, all creation will be redeemed. We will love him perfectly. We won't struggle with our faith. His faith will then be turned to sight. But if you are not trusting Jesus actively right now, putting your hope in Jesus, and he is your Lord, your Savior, your treasure, if you're not actively repenting, if you're not following him, I cannot guarantee you'll be with him that day. And I don't say that to manipulate you, to bully you, to pull on your heartstrings, heartstrings, but to tell you earnestly that that is reality. If you are not trusting in Jesus and he's not your absolute Lord of every area of your life, you have no confidence that you will be with him that day. And the reality then is your fate will be very different than mine. 
Not because I'm better than you, but because I'm trusting in Jesus. The best days of your life right now will be the closest you'll ever get to heaven. And the worst days of your life now will look like the best days ever compared to the everlasting torment you'll have as you reject him and you get what you want. If you don't want Christ now, you don't have to have him and you won't have him forever, ever, ever. Separation from God, the opposite of a redeemed creation. Everything bad about this world will be amplified and you will experience that forever. And again, it's so politically incorrect for me to say such a thing, but yet if I actually have an ounce of love in my heart for you, and I do, I will warn you with all my heart that that is the reality. Friends, that is the reality. Beloved, that's the reality that we're dealing with. Your friends and family members and co-workers who don't know Christ, that is the reality. They will not experience a redeemed creation. They will experience everything opposite of that. And if you're in here and you're holding on to your sin, holding on to your control, that will be your fate too. But praise be to God that Jesus made a way for people like you and like me to have peace with God. He already paid the price. He died. He suffered. He absorbed your punishment. And what is required is for your absolute allegiance and trust in him. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Be baptized. Repent and believe in him. Come talk with one today. Today is the day. Do not wait another day. Do not think that you will have tomorrow because death still reigns on this earth. Don't know. Please talk to one of us. There is hope for you. And now let me close with this, church. Next time, church, we feel pain in our body or right now as you feel pain in your body, rejoice because one day you will never feel that again. Next time you feel the oppression of depression, remember you'll have a resurrected body one day and always feel rightly. Hang on, church. Next time you eat something delicious, remember one day we will feast with Jesus with fine-aged meats and wine, seeing him face-to-face forever. And church, remember, because Jesus got a new body, we will all have new bodies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this truth. And I pray, Lord, that my pitiful attempt to talk about the glories of the resurrection, the glories of the new heavens and new earth, would, be, would stir up great hope and strength for another week of toil, a strength for another week of struggle, that we get to see your face one day and we'll have new bodies that are old, dying, decrepit bodies that are not functioning right, that one day we will get a new body. Lord, let that fill all of us with fresh hope. And for those who have not here who are not trusting you, not following you, that it would fill them with fresh terror so that they can be filled with fresh hope. May they come to you. Anybody here who doesn't know you, let them come to you right now because you are strong and kind, because you extend peace, shalom, peace to you all. You are a God that extends peace to enemies and unfaithful people like us. Thank you, Jesus. What a savior you are. We can't wait to meet you face to face. And Lord, if there's anything that I said was not accurate according to your word, would you correct me? And let no one hear those words and forget them now. But everything that was of true, of from heaven, from heaven, let it deeply shape and transform us and fill us with fresh hope everlasting. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to transition to the Lord's Supper in a minute. David Andrews is going to lead us. And after a song or two,